0: Good morning, all right, one more announcement for today, you probably noticed these paper bags over there, anybody first time they've seen that at all, really, okay, I thought every single person would have immediately saw that, so what happened yesterday is that we went and picked um, vegetables at Charlie's You Pick up in the good old Green County, technically it's like on the line, so I don't know if we were part of the fields in George, part of the counties in green, I don't know, but part of the field, you know what I'm saying. We went and picked vegetables, and the idea is we picked these vegetables so that we could give these vegetables. So here is a lot of different bags with um, different fruit, tomatoes, cucumbers, um, zucchini, squash, green beans, there's lots of different things in there, you can see what's going on. Here's what I want you to do. So I don't want any bags to be left after service today. I want you to take a bag or a few bags to someone you know today. So the idea for the month, our missions focus for June, is Feed the Hungry. So if you've got anyone you know of, maybe a neighbor, some family member, or someone you're just aware of that could use some fresh groceries to be beneficial to them, or if you've just got someone that you want to do something kind for that would appreciate that, and this would be a good opportunity for you to just make a loving act a kind act towards them to help open a door. So for me, I've got both scenarios. I've got a neighbor that's an elderly widow that I want to take a bag to, and I've also got a neighbor that moved in this past week, and this is just something I want to take to that neighbor for the sake of introducing and hopefully having gospel conversation down the road. So I'm inviting you to take at least one bag, but if you can think of several people, there's 20-something bags over there. I don't remember the exact number. There's plenty of bags Take a bag of fresh groceries to someone today. If you are the needy family and need some fresh vegetables, you know, of course, we would want to feed you as well. So take one. But if you have any questions about that, ask me. Catherine also headed that up, so she has a lot better answers than I do about it. But it was a really fun time. We had a great time picking the vegetables. So take one before you leave and maybe two before you leave, and we will feed people fresh vegetables for our missions project uh, for this month. All right, grab your Bible. 2 Corinthians. I'm excited about the passage today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. we We're going to pick up in verse 12 and we'll finish the chapter, which is only a few verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 2. 12. So let me give you some setup as we go into this. So Paul's story is going to be significant, and it really fits into one of our themes at the church. We want to, as a church, produce mature disciple-makers. We want to take normal people, maybe at church at the square, we could say strange people, um, people like us. We want to take that kind of people, and we want to make you, help train you, train ourselves to be mature disciple-makers, Now, when we say mature disciple-makers, there's some built-in ideas in disciple-making about the gospel, about um, spreading the name of Jesus Christ, about training others, but we do have four particular things in mind of how we would define a mature disciple-maker. Number one is we would say a mature disciple-maker has to be present in in the body. So you can't be a mature disciple-maker apart from the body of Christ. This is how gifts work. This is how the Spirit works among us is In the corporate body, we expect and think a mature disciple, mature disciple maker is going to be present in the body. Come to church, be in a small group, come to a Bible study, to hang out with other believers, to spend time in fellowship. Second, we would say a mature disciple maker is going to be purposeful in the world. What we mean is you look at your scenarios, you look at your neighbors, you look at your good situations, your bad situations, you look at your money, you look at your time, as opportunity for the kingdom of God. You see all these different pieces of your life as God opening doors for you to do gospel work, to, to be nice to someone in a way that helps speak the gospel, to literally speak the gospel to your neighbors. You see these relationships as opportunities, purposeful. Everything that God puts before you has purpose, and a mature disciple maker sees this. Third, we say a mature disciple maker should be prepared in mind. You got to know the gospel. Paul was able to off the cuff, share the basics of the gospel. All mature disciple makers should be able to do that, to understand the basics of theology. That's why we systematically study books. We don't want you to just have some canned responses about Christianity. We want you to understand the worldview. We want you to understand what the Bible teaches, how the Bible teaches, the worldview that it contains to embrace that worldview and look at the worldviews around you to watch a television show and see how that worldview is different than ours, to watch a movie and know how that worldview is different than ours, to be able to speak to your neighbor and know where that person's worldview is different than ours. We want you to be prepared in mind, but the category that's going to fall in most clearly this morning is the fourth thing we expect all mature disciple makers to be is persevering. If you have done work in ministry in any way, I don't necessarily mean that staff or a paid position, but if you have poured out a portion of your life for the sake of the gospel, to make disciples, to befriend people, to share the love of Christ, you've had to struggle with burnout. You've had to struggle with suffering, with rejection, with sorrow, with just being overwhelmed, with being tired, with being worn out. And Paul is going to give us a principle this morning. that I'm not going to say it alleviates all of that, but it gives us a framework for thinking about it. In current lingo, one of the big words these days is grit. You've got to have grit to keep going, and there's a lot of truth about that in anything. If you just keep at it, you can see some fruit, but like if you start a small group, you you have to have that grit to keep at it. Well, what we would say is you have to persevere. You've got to stick to the mission that God has given you. You've got to have the perseverance to keep going even when things get hard. And I don't know about you, but I've been in several points in my life, points in my own mission and what I felt like God was calling me to do where I was just wore out and done. I couldn't go any further. I felt like there's been at least twice I wanted to quit, walk away, do a different profession altogether just because it wears you out to stay on God's mission. Sometimes we have this false paradigm that if we're doing it right, then God would open all the doors and everything would be easy. And if it's hard, you're, you're doing something wrong. And we see that as purely it's just spiritual warfare. Satan's trying to get me stuck. Sometimes that's exactly what it is. And we need to think about it in that light, and other times it's something else, and that's what I want to dive into this morning as we look at Paul in 2 Corinthians. So let's go ahead and read the first part of the paragraph, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, comma, let's stop there. I know we didn't read a whole sentence, but uh, let's just work with this. We're going to have to break this down a little bit. So we're doing good Bible study. When I came to trust. Who's I? This is the Apostle Paul. Paul's writing the letter. We call 2 Corinthians. It's actually the fourth letter in a series of letters Paul wrote. We only have two, but this is the final follow-up letter before he makes this big return to them. They had a falling out, if you remember. Um, a group of people had risen up in the church who didn't like Paul, had contradicted Paul, and so we got to quit believing in this guy named Paul. And a lot of turmoil happens, Paul finds out that's going on, so he goes to Corinth, has a meeting, tries to set things right. If you've ever had that scenario where there was an offense or a disagreement between you and another person, you decided the smartest thing to do was go settle this in person instead of through some remote correspondence. If you ever had an argument with someone, you start trying to text about it, you go back and forth in text messages, well, what goes wrong with that? you know, everything, right? You can't read facial cues. Like, you're much more likely to say something dumb in a text message or an email than you would in person, right? And so I think Paul's not thinking about media in that sense, but in terms of, you know, letter correspondence, he knows he can do a better job in person. So he goes to Corinth in person to settle this, but it doesn't work. He gets there, and the church as a whole, under the leadership of some False apostle, Paul calls him a super apostle. Um, The church basically kicks Paul out of town. And Paul, rather than fighting, he leaves broken and wounded and now has to go back and do ministry with a church he planted no longer in fellowship with him. They hate him. They're frustrated with him. They do not believe that he's a genuine apostle of God. They disagree with his very identity. And you can imagine how hurtful that is. And so Paul, of course, responds to that with a severe letter. That's number three. So we have number four. That was, number three writes this letter. And then for a while, Paul is in limbo, waiting on this guy named Titus to let us know, let him know how things go with that letter. So when he says in verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now why does he want to find Titus? Titus is the one who took the severe letter. So Paul got ousted from the church in their presence. Then he writes a really bad letter, so severe he's kind of sorry it was so severe, and now he's waiting on Titus to bring that news back to him so that he knows how the church responds to that letter. Now we live in a completely different world, you know. So if you have an iPhone, I know you can have on text message read receipts. You ever check that? Like the tons to read my message, and you just sit there and wait for it to go to red. Let's be honest, how many people actually do that, you know? And then when it turns red and they don't respond, what are you doing? Call? Uh, well, that's a wise man. Most of us don't. We just get bitter. We go. I know they read the message. We can't shut the. It's like there's a pop up in our mind, and you can't close that window until you settle the pop-up. Like It's there, and that's Paul. So imagine that in a world where the only way to go talk to someone would be to get on a boat, take a two-week trip somewhere, and then hunt him down by going to ask people if they've seen this random guy named Titus, which is a good Greek name, meaning there's probably thousands of Tituses everywhere you go, and he's got to go find Titus. Can you imagine Paul's scenario? He's burdened about this church that hates him. He sent this letter and hopes that they would repent. And now he's waiting on Titus. And he knew that Titus was going to come back and meet him by following. He was going to leave Corinth, go up to Macedonia, sell over to Troas, and then come find Paul in Ephesus. But Paul's left Ephesus, and he's going to Troas, hoping Titus would already be that far along the journey. But what happens when he gets to that city, Troas? and so it says this is very interesting even though a door was opened for me in the lord now several things going on in this verse we use that lingo open doors and god opened a door that's actually it's biblical lingo we get it from the scriptures when we say god opened a door for you what are we saying what's the idea of god opening a door specifically in this case for ministry it's this opportunity. It's, it's probably, in this specific case, beyond just opportunity, but good response. Like you go and you share the gospel somewhere, and rather than getting kicked out of town, which if you think about it, that's exactly what he was doing in Ephesus, big riot. He had to leave town because it got so bad. He gets the tross, and man, people here want to hear the gospel. They're excited about the gospel. He's got fruit, and it doesn't just say some Door was opened as though it was a temptation, but it literally says the door was opened in the Lord. So who opened the door? Paul knows God opened a door in this city for me to preach the gospel. But what's going on with Paul's spirit? It's not in trust. The doesn't no matter how open the door was. Paul cannot focus on what's going on in this city, even though a door is open. It says, My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So before you read any further, Paul is, you know, this great apostle. Do you think he stays and works on this open door regardless of how he feels? Or does he walk away from the open door and do something else? What do you think Paul is going to do? <laughs> you read ahead. I think we would all think Paul stays because we would expect that to be the mature Christian response. But that's not where Paul's heart is. Paul's heart is on Titus, which means Paul's heart is on Corinth. He has got to know what happens. So let's go a little further. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So that means he had to change continents. He left Asia, he sailed the cross got to Macedonia. He knew that that was the the next step for Titus. So he wanted to make sure he found Titus. He would be in the right place when Titus shows up. Now, he doesn't tell us in this paragraph that Titus showed up in Macedonia. We will find that out later. So just jump over to chapter 7, real quick. Um, Chapter 7, verse 5. You see? So even when we came into Macedonia... so. This door was opened in Troas, but then he leaves because Titus isn't there, and he goes to Macedonia, and then he gets to Macedonia, and says our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So think about what just transpired there. Wide open door in Troas. He can't focus on it, though. He's got to go to Macedonia. He's got to know The message from Titus. He gets to Macedonia, and how are things in Macedonia? Terrible. It's hard. It's not just fighting without us. Fear within. But what does God do? Verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So what was the message from Titus that he finally got once he got to Macedonia? Paul, they're sorry. They've come to their senses. That The gospel came back to center in their minds, because for them, believing in the gospel and believing in Paul were the same thing. And so Paul's... Being restored in the church, it says they were mourning. They had zeal for Paul, and so he rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, remember the severe letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though for a while, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting you were grieved into repenting so what ultimately brought paul joy in that scenario is this group of people he was preaching the gospel to repented they turned to the lord have you ever seen a conversion Have you ever seen a life change by the power of the gospel this is paul's bread and butter this is what it all is for him He says in Ephesians chapter 3, he's trying to explain his role in the kingdom of God. He says, this grace has been given to me that I get to preach the unfathomable, wow, I put a lot of extra syllables in that word, didn't I? Unfathomable, there we go, unfathomable riches of the glory of Christ to the Gentiles. This is what Paul lives for. He gets to preach the gospel to these Greeks, to these pagans, to these people who have no hope. And he sees day after day, month after month, year after year, lives transformed through the power of the gospel. You can imagine how happy, how joyous that makes Paul feel. I mean, Jesus told parables about the angels in heaven rejoicing at repentance. Paul got to see and taste this on a regular basis. So he's going around preaching the gospel That changes lives. There's your first blank. The gospel has the power to change lives. So when we gather for church, we're not just trying to come up with some pithy sayings that get people excited, pep rally, positive thinking, get people going in a better direction and have more fruitful, pragmatic lives. That is not our goal. We believe that the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, literally, not figuratively, literally changes people. We believe there's a true, literal power in this message of Jesus Christ, in the system of belief that God took human flesh upon himself, became a man, Jesus Christ, lived perfectly as that man before God the Father, yet he took the cross in our place. All of your sin, all of our wrongdoing, every evil thing we have done, placed on him in the crucifixion, the wrath of God poured out, fully absorbed in Christ, where he says it is finished. He takes it all, but then he dies. On the Sabbath day, he rests. On the first day of the week, Sunday morning, he conquered the power of sin. He conquered the power of death, literally. And he rose from the grave. And we have a gospel that offers the same sort of life-changing power to us in every moment of every day, the power of the resurrection, the power of sin forgiven changes lives. This is what Paul gets to preach. So imagine, though, what happens when you have such a powerful message and you take a church like Corinth and you preach that message and they supposedly believed that message. You fast forward a year and that church now hates you. Can you imagine how disappointing that was? Because then you start to wonder, like, Paul knows the message works. Paul knows the message is powerful. So what's he going to question? Not the message. He's going to start to question the messenger. See what's going on? So, the more powerful the gospel appears to Paul, you can imagine the more, like, a failure he's going to feel to himself. And that's where Paul was at. And that's Two very depressing verses, 12 and 13. So back in chapter 2, let's read verse 14. Now remember, in this paragraph, he didn't mention Titus. He'll get to that. So all we've done in 12 and 13 is we know that he got to Macedonia and things just aren't well. He's depressed. He's sad. He's broken his gospel that he knows changes lives. As far as he knows, still did not bear fruit in Corinth. But see what he says. But thanks be to God. Now, we know in chapter 7, he's ultimately thankful because Titus comes back with the message of their repentance. He does not have that message yet in the story at this point. You follow what I'm saying? So he's still saying what he's about to say from the standpoint of depression, not from the standpoint of victory. So hear what he says. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, in the Greek language here, this is a, an explicit statement. For us, triumphal procession, what does that mean? It's just like victorious. It's just a positive term for you did good. All right, that's, in their culture, this was a super specific phrase. And this is what they called a parade when a Roman general won a major decisive battle. Not a local skirmish, but some major deal. So they didn't have these very often. And when they did have these, it was a big deal. Everyone came to see this, and they were usually in Rome because the emperor would be present to see this. But the general would be paraded through the city. And he would come down. He would have in his train some of his soldiers. Undoubtedly, there would be slaves. In some cases, they would, like, have, you know, people tormented, like it would be an ugly thing, but it was a sign of glorious victory. They would parade this group of people, some soldiers, some slaves, sometimes they were being paraded to their death. So imagine you're in that procession. You've really got two options if you're in the procession. You could be one of the soldiers. If you're a soldier in the procession, what does that mean at that moment? (laughs) Victory. I mean, you were at a parade, a celebration, you have won. And they would burn incense, and you would smell that aroma. And when you smelled that aroma, what did it remind you of? Victory. It was the smell of victory. But that's not what everybody's doing in the parade. You go to the back part of the parade, and you got a group of people in chains walking in the parade. These are the conquered. And many times, they're not on their way to some victory party. What are they on their way to? Or the Colosseum, right? What happens in the Colosseum? This is gladiator. I mean, they die. I mean, you've watched those movies, right? They're pretty graphic. You probably shouldn't. But, you know, that they were graphic in real life, all right? This is, that same parade, the same aroma meant something completely different to the people marching in the back of the parade, right? So, one fragrance... Two different emotional responses. So with that in mind, read what Paul says. So, but thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Lingo from the parade. The incense is burning. Who smells the incense? And anybody near that is going to smell what's going on. So what are they spreading? What's Paul saying here? The knowledge of God The knowledge of Christ specifically is being spread everywhere Paul goes. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Two different groups. One group is in the procession because they're victorious. One group is in the procession because they are not. It says, to one, a fragrance from death to death. Think about the slaves in the back. They smell that that aroma. There's nothing pleasant about that. They know where they're going. The the more they experience, the more they smell, the more of their sensory input they receive, the more they know that this is not good. The exact same odor, however, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Here's what I'm getting at. The message isn't different in either, either scenario. But in which scenario is the glory of the general being betrayed? In both, right? The the soldiers, they're participating in the glory of the general, but so are the slaves. How are the slaves participating in the glory of the general? By being defeated. Think about the Super Bowl, right? You watch the Super Bowl. Which team gets the glory? The winning team, right? Does the losing team contribute to that glory in any way? By losing, yes. The losing itself is a major contribution to the glory of the winning team. We get this lingo all throughout Scripture. You may remember in Romans chapter 2, we saw this thing where the more we're sinful, the more God gets glory. And the reason was, is because the worse we are, the better he looks in comparison. You know what I'm saying? This is biblical. What's, what's Paul doing here? So think through it. He's saying that even there in Macedonia, nothing looks right. I mean, Things were good in trials, but he gets to Macedonia, fighting without fear within, persecution on every side. He's tormented because Titus has not come. The gospel seems to be failing everywhere he goes, but he is certain that either way, He preaches the gospel and people respond or he preaches the gospel and people reject. Both of those scenarios produce God's glory. Both of them. That's the point. Think about Isaiah. Remember the calling of Isaiah? One of the more Beautiful pictures of the calling of a prophet in the Old Testament. It says in the year, King Uzziah died. He saw the Lord high and exalted, lifted up. And the drain from his robe is coming down and filling the temple. And you have the cherubim on the side, the flaming ones. One wings covering the face, two covering the feet. And then two flying, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then Isaiah sees this vision and realizes, you know, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips that he just knows he's going to die and then the angel takes the coal from the altar and puts it on Isaiah's lips and purifies him and then we have that glorious statement of who am I going to send the Lord says who will go for me what's Isaiah say do you remember the story it's like "Ooh, "Ooh, here am I send me and then everybody stops right there and doesn't read what the point of the message was God says all right here's your story Here's what you're going to do. I want you to preach these people to hell. I want you to preach until they get sick of it, till they become dull in their senses, so that I don't heal them, so that they perish. I want you to preach until the land gets destroyed. I want you to be the prophet that no one pays attention to, and you are going to glorify my name and how I pour out my wrath on these unrepentant people. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Don't we feel that way, though? Because we've made the gospel pragmatic. We think victory means a lot of people got saved. Now, victory means Jesus got glory. God's going to get glory one way or the other. We, we love that expression that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because that's in the setting of judgment. Every knee is going to bow. You can do that right now. And say, praise the Lord for salvation. Or you can bow the knee at the judgment day and go, oh, man, I got this wrong. He is the Lord. And now I'm going to suffer the wrath of the almighty God. Paul's saying either scenario, whether I get success or whether I get failure, Jesus gets glory. And Jesus getting glory means we win. That's his mission. That's his life. Paul filters everything around the glory of God. And I love his question at the end of verse 16. It says, who is sufficient for these things? Remember we said Paul, the only thing Paul has left to question. But if he's got a gospel that is glorious, so good it changes lives, it's so good it's going to bring God glory whether it succeeds or fails from our vantage point. If the gospel is that Glorious and that good and that powerful. Well, the only thing he's got that could be going wrong is himself. But he's getting at that right there. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, the true, honest answer would be nobody. We're not sufficient for this message. If everyone's salvation rested on the quality of your evangelism, that's a scary concept, isn't it? But it doesn't. See how he words this. For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word. That's Paul's way of saying, we have not crafted some super effective strategy. For if I share the gospel this way, I get more results. That's not what we've done. He's going to give us four characteristics instead. So, but we're men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak. In Christ. All four of those things modify the word we speak. So we speak in what way? We speak as men of sincerity. We speak as commissioned by God. We speak as though in the sight of God. And we speak in Christ. That's what our speaking needs to be. Sincere. Well, they believe this message. They're not sharing this message because they have to. Yeah, they're commanded to share the message. That's not how Paul viewed this, though. He viewed this as an opportunity, God's grace to him. He sincerely wanted to see the glory of Christ portrayed in his life. He preached it as commissioned by God, sent. He's not doing God a favor. God's the one making the commands here. God's the one sending. God's the one who said, go make disciples. God's the one who called out Paul specifically to be an apostle to the Gentiles in the sight of God. So I remember when um, Abby was a little kid. Is she in here? She's in here. Okay, sorry. Um, when she was like four, you probably don't remember this, she would like want to, me to watch her do everything. Like she would like jump over a stick. And you're like, Daddy, watch me jump over the stick. And I'm like, oh, that's great, girl. You did a good job. And she'd say, um, I'm going to jump over again. I want you to watch me and see if I do it better. And i have watch her jump over the stick exactly the same way. Was that one better? It's like, yeah, yeah, it was a lot better. And then watch me jump over the stick again. And it, I'm telling you, you pull out your phone, you look at your phone, she jumps over the stick, and you kind of see her land in the corner of your eye, and you look up like, like you were looking. It's like, Daddy, you are not watching. You know? <laughs> like, have you ever seen this? And Abby's not the only one. She's children in general. Blaze is in that stage right now. He does something. He wants you to watch him do that something. All right, we, we work the opposite as adults, right? As an adult, we don't want someone to watch us do something but until we're really good at it, and then it's okay if they watch, right? All right, think about the childlike response here before God. We want God to watch what we're doing. It's a childlike response. Hey, everything in his sight. I want to be seen before him. Is that how we make disciples? Is that how we live in general? Oh, God, watch this. Watch this little child. Or do we kind of have that Pharisee worldview? Well, I'll get this right eventually, and then I'll go do it. That's not how it works. We've got to do this sincere. We're commissioned insight, but ultimately the most important one is that we do it in Christ. Where does the power come from? It's not you. It's Christ. It's his gospel. This last point is the most significant of them all. The power of the gospel is in the message, not the messenger. Because our role is simply to make it known, simply to present it. The results are God's, the power is God's, the fruit, it all belongs to God. Our role is to faithfully demonstrate the gospel, to demonstrate in the way we live and what we say and how we say it and the way we interact with people. We want to present the gospel, the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, the glory of salvation. We just want to make it known. And if we rest in his power, then we can recognize, whether in success or failure, that same aroma may in some produce life and to others produce death. But in either scenario, Jesus gets his glory. That is where we will find our persevering spirit.